Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, this is an interesting one, and I don't... I've researched this a lot, and sometimes I have like a clever beginning, or sometimes I'm like really confident about how I'm going to start an episode. And this is not one of those cases. Did Jesus go to hell? Is God in hell? Should we pray for the dead? Um, there's a weird kind of section of scripture that I think this question really emerges from, and there's a lot of doctrine that it that emerges out of it. First Peter chapter three, verse eighteen, through First Peter chapter four, verse six. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through the water. There is also an antitype, which now saves us, the baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not turn with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live, but live according to God in the spirit. Okay. (laughs) Um, There's a lot going on here and there's a a doctrine that comes out of this. And there's kind of another verse in Ephesians chapter four. It's verse eight, which says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And there's a doctrine that emerges that after the cross, Jesus went down to hell and he preached to some sort of beings in hell and perhaps rescued some out of hell. And then, so <laughs> there, there's a, a level of Christian theology that says, well, no, that didn't happen because Luke's gospel records Jesus dying on the cross. There's a thief on his left and a thief on his right. On his right. And one thief says, is, is like scoffing at him, right? And he's like, oh, if you're really God, save us. And the other thief is like, bro, shut up. Like, don't you realize that we're here because we're awful people? We've sinned. And he just turns and says, Lord, recognizing Jesus as Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, assuredly, today you will be with me in paradise. And so then we we say, okay, well, obviously Jesus didn't go to hell because today, the day he died, also that day was like coming to a close, right? Because when the sun goes down, that's the end of the day. And they wanted to take him down because the next day was Sabbath, but Jesus has already died. He gave up, he gave up the ghost. He gave up his spirit, right? And so it's like, well, it's not a lot of time, but then you think, okay, the Bible also says that like 
one day in heaven is like a thousand days on earth. So did he mean this day in heaven? And, you know, if Jesus spends one day going down to hell, well, then, yeah, he's really freaking right. And that's going to go by like in the blink of an eye on heaven time zone, right? Heaven international. That's actually not not correct. Heaven interdimensional time zone, right? <laughs> um, and then, you know, David in Psalm 139 is also like talking about God and how ever-present and omnipresent God is, right? Omnipresent mean that there is not a space, place, dimension in existence where God is not there. And he says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there, obviously. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, you are there. And then (laughs) if we, uh, to complicate matters a little bit further, Paul will later write a letter to the church at Thessalonica. And he will say, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So there's a couple different things in here, right? And I need to note first off that there's a difference here in denomination as far as this belief goes. It's It is a part of the Catholic catechism to believe that after the death of Jesus on the cross, before the resurrection, Jesus descended into hell and, let's be clear, did not face punishment for sins in hell, right? Both Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox Christianity professes that when Jesus said tetelestai, which is the Greek, it is finished, on the cross, that that was the payment for sin that there was no more payment, that we, by works, or that Jesus, by some form of suffering in hell, had to do, that sin was paid for, that when Jesus cried up, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross, that in some, in some ways, and, and hear me out on this, that was actually Jesus facing hell, right? Because if, if we take this idea of 1 Thessalonians, which is that hell is absent of the presence of God, and well, let's, let's break that down first, I guess. The presence of God. If God is omnipresent, he's in hell, right? If, if, because there's also a theological truth where God creates by his word and sustains by his word. It's deism that says that God created the world, kind of wound it up like a clock, and just let it go and stood back and is kind of just watching from the bleachers. And that's not true. Proper Christian theology says that God's word goes out into the void and creates, but his word stays in the void. And that's why Jesus can say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no mean will. And so everything in the void of voids, the void of nothingness, is sustained by the word of God, including hell, including that prison for those disobedient spirits, which we'll get to that in a second too. And so God is there. (laughs) And this is weird, right? God is in hell, but his presence is not in hell. And so 
we have to understand now in the Hebrew, there are two different kinds of presences. There's a physical presence and a facial presence. And so God's physical presence is everywhere, but his face, and we are putting human characteristics on spirit God, so let's get that out of the way. But, but, but it is poetic language, and it is metaphorical language, because where God's face is, God's blessing is. Where God's face is, God's peace is. Where God's face is, the fulfillment and joy. And if you listen to the last episode, the awe of, of which God's face is intended to produce, inspire, and create in all of creation is there. There can be no tear. There can be no sorrow. There can be nothing but the fullness of joy and the feasting of the bride being married to the bridegroom. That's God's facial presence, and that's not in hell. And so one way to look at this, and, and I want to treat this metaphor very sensitively, because I think all of us, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us have had that, that moment where you see an ex-boyfriend uh, or girlfriend out in public somewhere, and it's like, oh, this is really uncomfortable, right? Imagine how much more uncomfortable it would be if you broke up with someone and then they decided to live with you for the rest of their lives in your life. That'd be very uncomfortable, or even worse, and this is probably more what it's like, you're married to someone, and then they divorce you, and they marry someone else, and you have to live with them in that house, watching them be married to the new partner for the rest of your life, and that's that's hell, and, and, and that's exactly the point, right? Like, that sounds like hell. Yes, literally, that that is a... a as close as I can come anyway to a metaphor for what God's presence in hell is like, right? Like the divorced spouse that you're living with, their face is not towards you. Their face is towards the person that wanted to marry them, right? The the, the, the new person that wanted to marry them. And and, and may, maybe the metaphor breaks down even more where, where you, didn't, you don't want to marry that spouse, right? Because people in hell don't want to be with God. And so his presence is there, but his presence isn't there, if that makes sense. Like, like God... God's omnipresent, immutable characteristic is there. Otherwise, hell wouldn't exist. But God's facial presence that comes with his attributes and characteristics that, that we're meant to find that awe and fulfillment in, it's not there. And even if it were, you wouldn't want it anyway. And that's kind of the point of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Right? There's this bus that goes from hell to heaven, and you can choose to get off the bus and stay in heaven, but most people choose to get right back on the bus and go back to hell. Which brings us back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and 4. What is going on here? Something. Something is going on here. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine of Hippo, two theologians that not only I, but Protestantism and Catholicism, really just the church in general, revere and respect and have so much understanding of theology because of Thomas Aquinas and Augustine of Hippo, they don't believe Jesus went down to hell. What they believe is that this is a reference to, and it should also be noted that some translations read this differently. Some translations include more about the days of Noah. Some translations say the, that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in the days of Noah that are now in prison. And there's a, a word now that's added, right? And that's, that's kind of what Thomas Aquinas and Augustine of Hippo believed, is that this is a reference to Jesus preaching to the spirits in the days of Noah, and then Paul making reference to that to bring about the point of baptism. And it's a fair enough argument, 
you know, in, in the days of Noah, eight people were saved <laughs> of the entire world. And, and some historians and theologians estimate the world had about 9 billion people on it at the time. So more people than are in the world now and eight were saved. And so it's not unreasonable to think that God in his mercy and love and grace would go down and preach to the spirits, these, these sons of God, as Genesis 6 records, that were corrupting the hearts of men, marrying the women on earth, and creating the, the Nephilim, this giant race of, the Bible says, mighty men, right? So very strong warriors, probably aggressive men. Maybe God preached to them. Certainly that's what Thomas Aquinas and Augustine of Hippo believe, and certainly I, I do not have the audacity, the pride, or the boldness to say that they were wrong. They might have been very right. And I think that's the stance I'm going to take on this. I don't know. I don't know if Jesus went down to hell. And also the word hell is different here. It's, we have Hades and Sheol used in the Bible. Right? We don't have hell the way we understand it. The way we understand hell is brought to you mostly in part by Dante's Inferno. And that's our Western Protestant understanding of hell. As we took this idea of Dante's Inferno, that hell is singularly singularly a place for those judged by God, that hell is singularly a place for sins, and the different sins have different levels, and betrayal is the one right above Satan. And and that's a very interesting thing as well, because it, it kind of brings me to mind of like, okay, what has influenced Hades and Sheol? And obviously, I say the word Hades, maybe this isn't obvious, but I say the word Hades, and I think about the Greek myths surrounding Hades. And if Jesus did go down to hell and rescue some from the dead, it's not entirely original. And so that's something that also kind of piques my interest. This is also a doctrine that has been held by the church for much longer than the doctrine that Thomas Aquinas and Augustine of Hippo espouse and believed. This doctrine predates the Catholic Church, and that's something very interesting. The doctrine that Jesus went down to hell, preached to those souls in hell, preached to the dead, as Peter says in chapter 4, verse 6, and we know the Bible doesn't refer to angels, demons, or spirits as dead at all because they were never alive in the sense that we're alive on earth. So maybe this is dead people in Hades, in Sheol. And it says he preached to the spirits in prison, which might very well be the spirits that were on the earth at the time. We do know that there is a, a, a portion of Hades dedicated to being a prison. But the church held that, that this was... God's triumphant smack in the face to Satan between the cross and the resurrection was that he would go down and take souls that the devil had previously lorded over God as having been one. But Jesus finally bringing the fullness of the promise of Genesis 3 to crush the head of the serpent, rub some dirt in his eyes by taking souls out. And so if you're a fan of creation myths like I am, and you're familiar with the Mesopotamian creation myth, the Egyptian creation myth, as well as Greek mythology, I feel like there's there's a, a couple stories here that kind of come to mind, right? I, I think the Mesopotamian creation myth with Marduk kind of going into Tiamat's kingdom and and slaying her, slaying Kingu, the king of the of the demons, there's certainly some echoes of that there if we say that Jesus went down to Sheol, to Hades, and preach the gospel, and that that one souls for heaven, for the kingdom, for paradise. I think the notion that that can't be true because he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, is, it, it, it could very well be correct, but there could be some holes in it as well. 
I think also of Zeus and Semele. And that's an interesting story, right? Where Zeus has a child with Semele and then he puts the, like he reveals himself to her and it causes her to burst into flames because he's a god and she's not. And so he takes the fetus and sews it into his leg and it becomes Dionysus, right? And Dionysus gets born and he has to go into Hades and rescue his mother from the underworld. It's a very, there, there are reflections in it in stories we have today from Lord of the Rings to Pinocchio going and rescuing his father from the belly of the beast, right? And then there's the Egyptian myth of Horus rescuing Osiris from the underworld and and, and redeeming that and reigning with Osiris and, and defeating Seth and Ra going down to the underworld with Seth and, and battling the serpent, right? And that's how we get the rising and setting of the sun and the eclipse. And so it's like the, the sun god goes down to the underworld and, and wages war in the underworld, kind of like Dionysus has to do to rescue his mother. And so what can we draw from this then? Well, we can maybe assume that Jesus going down into hell, into Hades, into Sheol, has its roots in pagan tradition. And if that's the case, does it tarnish the story? No. And, and I've said it before, as much as I love Frederick Nietzsche, he is he is my favorite philosopher. I have his books on my bookshelf sitting right behind me at this moment. I think his whole God is dead metaphor, parable, is brilliant, but it's not his either. Like, it's brilliant, but it's simple, you know, because he takes God is dead from the Mesopotamian creation myth. Because, as I just said, Marduk goes and kills Tiamat and Kingu, and he creates the world out of this dead God, and, and then he brings people up out of the innards of the of the king of the demons and people are just the the product of the demons right and frederick nietzsche basically says the same freaking thing when he says god is dead and we've killed him and we're constructing society out of his remains right and so so in in one sense solomon was right when he says there's nothing new under the sun there's not even new ideas under the sun and and what is the osiris and seth and horus and that whole story other than hamlet (laughs) except in the end and spoiler alert, but you've had a couple hundred years to read Hamlet, and but you, and you should read Hamlet. <laughs> you know, spoiler alert, Hamlet doesn't live in the end, but he does get to be reunited with his father in this purgatorial afterlife, right? But there's this idea where Hamlet, like Hamlet's father's in purgatory, and he has to go and, and kill um, Claudius, I think. As I just said, you should read Hamlet. Now I'm not even sure of their names. But he has to go and kill his, his brother, and, and redeem the evil that was committed to his father, just like the Egyptian creation myth. And at the end, him and his father are reunited, although they're reunited in the afterlife, not in the current life. And in the Egyptian uh, narrative, Horus brings Osiris back and they rule and reign together. But Horus is now the god that sees and the god that redeems and, and the god that mummifies, right? Brings the torn apart pieces of a corpse back together into one and back to life. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an age-old story. I mean, Horus and Osiris is probably more like the Lion King than like Hamlet, so fair enough. But there's something to it. There, there is something to this idea of going down to the underworld and redeeming what was dead. And we see it in the resurrection a little bit, except Jesus is different because Osiris is in the underworld because he was blind, right? And that's why Horus can see. <laughs> Tiamat and Kingu were in the underworld and Marduk had to go into the underworld because the earth would have been destroyed had they not, because chaos was reigning and there was jealousy and blood to be shed. Dionysus had to go into the underworld 
because Zeus couldn't keep it in his pants, right? Like, <laughs> maybe that's an oversimplification. It's, it's a much more complex story than that. But, but you get what I'm saying. Jesus Christ was perfect, and there wasn't a battle. If Jesus did go down to hell, there was no battle. There was no smacking the rock. There was just talking to the rock. And if he did, it doesn't necessarily contradict Christian theology. And, and I will say this, believing either way, believing that Jesus went down to hell and preached to the dead souls and, and preached to those in prison and, and maybe redeemed some souls, maybe he went down to hell and preached to the, the, the uh, spirits in prison and he saved eight people, just like the flood, right? Maybe, maybe he didn't. Maybe when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise, he meant that literal day, the you know two or three whatever hours were left in that day as the Hebrews saw it. And we know now to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Either way, it's not a salvation issue. And that's important to get too. That if you believe Jesus went down to hell and preached to the dead souls and maybe redeemed some, or if you believe he didn't, it's not a salvation issue as long as you believe it was finished when he said it was finished to tell us die on the cross when he cried up and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's something interesting too, is that Old Testament makes reference to Abraham's bosom. Old Testament makes reference to Sheol. David makes reference to when he dies, his body's in Sheol. And the New Testament makes reference to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, is in the Bible. And so maybe, and, and this is a thought in Christian theology, that Sheol, or Hades, had two parts to it prior to the death and resurrection of Christ, that it wasn't an instant transportation to heaven. And and that's not a silly idea, and and neither is purgatory. I don't know that I believe in purgatory. As a matter of fact, I really think I don't, but it's not a silly or stupid idea, just like Jesus going down to hell is not a silly or stupid idea. It's It's a very intelligent idea. I just don't know if it's true, and I just don't know if I'm bought off by it. But there definitely is something in theology where there was a, an intermediate pre-death and resurrection, Hades or Sheol, where those that believed in God and those that had faith, like Abraham, like Moses, like David, like Jeremiah, went, called Abraham's bosom. Kind of a, a, a waiting grounds for the actual paradise that was to come after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, so maybe there's something there, right? Where pre-gospel believers were stationed and Jesus went and preached the gospel to them and said, hey guys, this is what you've been waiting for. It's done. Let's go. The room is ready for you in my father's house. Maybe. God's back was not turned to that place if it were. And that is something very theologically true. That Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we don't know what that's like, believer, non-believer. We don't know what it's like to be forsaken by God. Not on earth. God has forsaken nobody on earth. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that nobody in this life ever would have to, or ever did have to. David, when he ran from Saul, Jeremiah, when his parents hired a hitman to kill him and the king lowered him down into a, a, a muddy pit where there was only mud and no water and he wrote lamentations. Habakkuk crying out on the rampart, Jonah in the belly of the beast, Job in all of his tragedy. God forsook none of them. God turned his back on none of them. And even if they died and and went to Sheol or Hades and it was some temporal holding place before actual heaven was opened for, for all of humanity at the death and resurrection of Christ, even if they went there, God's back was not to them. God was not forsaking them. They were in the presence of the Lord. 
There might have been something different. I don't know. I'm still on this side of eternity, probably as are you if you're listening to this. And so there's something there. And, and we, can't, we can't overlook it and we can't write it off. And I think that's, that's my conclusion on the matter. Is God in hell? Presence-wise, yes and no. Presence-wise, because he's omnipresent, yes. Presence-wise, facially, absolutely not. God's back is to hell. God's blessings are removed. The fulfillment, the peace is not in hell. And that's what the flames are. And that's another Augustinian doctrine, right? That the flames of hell might just be metaphorical and that should scare the crap out of you more if they're metaphorical and not real, right? The, the thirst it might not be a physical thirst. And so don't fear a man who can kill the body, Jesus said. Fear the one who can send the soul and the body to hell. Did Jesus go to hell and preach to the dead? Maybe. There's something there. For all of human history, we've looked to these stories of someone going into the underworld and rescuing those. And we know God's God of grace. God's God of love. He's holy. Very holy. And if you didn't get that from last episode, or if you didn't listen to it, I encourage you to go back and listen to the last episode I, I released. But sometimes I think his grace and his love is bigger than we think it is. And that his mercy extends beyond the borders and bounds of our human conception of his mercy. And so maybe between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, maybe God went down to hell and preached to the souls of the dead. So should we pray for the dead? I don't know. It can't hurt. I'll say that. Certainly when loved ones leave, it hurts. And certainly God is a God of comfort. And God's big enough to handle that. If you want to pray for the dead, go for it. I don't think you're in sin. You don't know where they ended up. You're not the judge. I think we're going to be surprised who is in heaven, and we're going to be surprised who isn't in heaven. It's like, <laughs> like, like look, at, look at Jeremiah, who I just referenced. Look, look at the Psalms. Look at Habakkuk, who I also just referenced. Habakkuk cried to God, are you not from everlasting to everlasting? Right? Jeremiah said, forget you, God. I'm not even preaching anymore. David's soul cried out in agony time and time and time and time again to God. And he was angry. And we've seen biblical authors be angry. And it's okay to be angry with God as long as you just pray it to him. God, I'm angry at you is a good prayer. Because he's big enough to handle it. And hey, when loved ones die, maybe you feel angry. Maybe you wonder why God does what he does. Pray. He's, he's big enough to handle it. He's not your judgmental father or mother. He's not the pastor you went to that said, just have more faith. Ask, and you will receive. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Whether Jesus went down to hell or not, there's something to these myths. There's something to the idea of going down to hell and redeeming what's dead. If anything, there's something there for us. And maybe that's something internal. Maybe there's dead parts of you. Maybe there's hell in your memories. Maybe there's trauma. Maybe you literally went through something hellish on earth. As I mentioned earlier, Dante said betrayals is the, the level of hell just above Satan, right? That that's the lowest of the low a human can do. Maybe someone betrayed you deeply. Maybe someone cheated on you. Maybe someone abused you. That's hell. And there's something to these myths. There's something to the idea of going there, waging war and bringing the dead parts back to life. 
There's something deeply human and deeply psychological about that. The cool part is if Jesus did it, it's not much of a battle. And so in some sense, this is very true, whether it's true or not. There's something we can learn here that all of history for the past at least seven or 8,000 years that we know of has had this idea of venturing into the underworld, venturing into the deep, dark, torturous places and restoring, redeeming, rescuing, and revitalizing. And I think Shakespeare was more right. I think if you do it without God, I think if you do it with any ill motive, you might kill someone you love or the father of someone you love. Like Shakespeare killed Ophelia's dad, Polonius. Like, like, like if you do it without God, you might just injure and damage your relationships and life, and you might never really be able to experience true love and intimacy. It's kind of the message from Hamlet. And ultimately, in the end, if you do it without God, you're going to kill yourself in the process. But I think the method of the Catholic catechisms is, if you do it with Jesus, or if you let Jesus into those deep, dark, hellish parts of your life, there might not even be that much of a battle. You might just need to let the gospel shine through and redeem all of that. And certainly that's a principle we can take out of it. Whether the traditional belief of the Catholic catechisms is more true than the belief that Thomas Aquinas and Augustine of Hippo had, or not as true, that is certainly something we can draw out of it. But I don't know. <laughs> Let me know what you think. This is a, a complex subject, and I'm definitely open to hearing more about it. But as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show.